You are listening to the Therefore a Geek podcast, episode 77. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Therefore a Geek. I'm Andrew. I'm Tracy. And I'm Lord Abaddon, the War Master. Dude found some of his Warhammer stuff. Yeah, I found the old stuff, <laughs> broke it out, and I played it by myself because I don't have friends. I, I love how you instantly knew that. I bet the game went smoother, too. Yeah. You were you were right. We've talked about this on the on the the war game episode, where you were like, your problem with Battlefleet Gothic is it takes a long time. And it's like, yeah, it actually does take a long time. And I was playing <laughs> it by myself. So today we're going to be talking about the the Vertigo book, Hellblazer. Uh, briefly before we get into that, though, we want to just uh, mention the unfortunate passing of Kenny Baker, who is the actor inside the R two D two costume. Obviously, it doesn't have the same same feelings like Leonard Nimoy passing or something. But you know, it's always unfortunate to hear someone involved, heavily, heavily involved in your uh, your childhood. Uh, yeah, passed passed away uh, yeah. yesterday. As we're recording this on the fourteenth, he passed away on the thirteenth of August, two thousand sixteen, at the age of eighty one in England. I uh, was born in nineteen thirty four, and. Basically, his entire career, or not his entire career, but his majority of his career was playing R2-D2 or the dwarf in actually a number of uh, fairly well-known 1980s movies. Yeah, uh, yep. Everything from you know, the, you know, what he's famous for being in Star Wars to the Elephant Man, Time Bandits, Goonies, probably small roles in all of those. But Yeah, and, and, and you know, a couple of those, like Time Bandits, notably... Uh, having a large cast of of dwarfs, yeah, little people, yeah. So it's funny because if you look down the wiki page, he's just like they they tell you the the movie he's in, the year, and then the role, and it's like dwarf, R two D two, R two D two, dwarf, 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 R two D two, dwarf, dwarf, R two D two, elf, dwarf, <laughs> then Casanova. <laughs> 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 nice. Then right back to being R2D2, R2D2, R2D2. You know, I gotta say that Peter Dinklage, and not just him alone, but I think he's it's easy to say that he's the forerunner of having little people able to take roles that aren't necessarily that. Although, Casanova's pretty cool. Um, and I, I think that that's actually pretty cool. Have you either of you guys seen In Bruges, the no. Colin Farrell movie? No. No, okay. Um, there's a little person in that one as well, and he's playing like a complete douchebag junkie, mm-hmm. and it's just it's just the character. It it has nothing to do with particularly his size. Although Colin Farrell's character, which I can never remember the name of, because Colin Farrell's another one of those guys where you look at it and you're just like, that's Colin Farrell. Um, he calls him out for his size in it, and the guy is like really pissed off. It's it's really actually a pretty good movie if you guys haven't seen it. So he's also, he's survived by his two kids. His wife died in 1993. And what I found funny just by doing a quick bio, because I didn't know much about him other than he was R2-D2, is that he had a legit feud with Anthony Daniels, the man who plays C-3PO. Wait, what? They like, like legit feud. Just according to the wiki page, you know, he revealed between him and his co- uh, a feud between him and his co-star Anthony Daniels. He claims Daniels had been rude to him on numerous occasions. States that Daniels is rude to everyone, including fans. Yeah, and, and like part of that is just so poetic that those two actually don't like each other. 
Like, do you think, like, you know, while he's inside the little R2-D2 can and, and he's just he's just cussing him out, we can't hear him. He's like, you freaking uptight mime son of a bitch. You, all you are is... Like, it's one thing we, we were talking about how uh, Baker is just mostly R2-D2 his, his entire career, despite having, you know, a stint as a stand-up comic. When I went over and looked at Anthony Daniels and just his filmography, it's nothing but... C three PO. C three PO. That's it. He did the Ralph. He was Legolas in the Ralph Bocci Lord of the Rings in seventy eight, and then it's C three PO, C three PO, and then a priest in some nineties movie called I Bought a Vampire Motorcycle, which sounds like an instant classic, and then it's just C three PO the rest of the way down. It's just all C three PO. Yeah. Yeah, it's something like that. Right, as I mentioned, our major topic today is going to be we're discussing the first. Uh, a trade of Hellblazer. It's called Original Sins. Uh, so it collects issues 1 through 9 of Hellblazer and 77 and 70, 76 and 77 of Swamp Thing. So it spans January of 88 through October of 88. Uh, and it's written by Jamie Delano and Rick Veitch with artists John Ridgway, Alfredo Acala, Rick Veitch, Tom Ma- uh, Mandrake, Brett Ewins and Jim McCarthy, and this gives us a, a like a, a good jump into 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 Hellblazer. So uh, the, the description off the back of the the, ish, the trade here is as one of the few magicians who understands both po- the possibilities and dangers of his art. Liverpool native John Constantine has managed to keep himself from becoming lost in its dark power, but he also cannot escape its seductive. addictive hold unfortunately while Constantine may understand magic's true price the world is full of amateurs willing to sign away their souls for a taste of it and like it or not his hard won knowledge guarantees that he'll always be in the middle of of the mess that follows and And as a magician as a magician myself I wish I was half this cool I'm sitting there going Damn, I, I don't get. Bu- I don't have. I'm not allowed to trap bug demons inside junkies. That's that's pretty cool. I want that job. <laughs> I mean, realistically, all, I, I all you want is an, the connection to demons. Yeah, I mean, all I do is make an egg disappear and reappear out of a little black bag. I am wasting my potential. Yeah. <laughs> of course, I, I feel like your parents have been saying that for a while. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Did you see like when I changed when I changed uh, my my Facebook profile picture to me doing the razor blade act? My my father like took it and shared it on his Facebook, and, and the caption he writes is, you know, some people bike for fun, some people work out. My son swallows razor blades and string in front of strangers. <laughs> no, I didn't see that. That's good though. He did that. So what did you guys so, think? So I as a just an overview. I really liked it. The book is from the 80s, so the stories are from the 80s, and uh, Jamie Delano writes the first nine volume or the first nine issues, and then uh, Rich takes over in the kind of Swamp Thing tack-ons. Yeah. And I, you know, I really liked this. I did. I really enjoyed it. The art is like typical Vertigo. It feels like everything Vertigo puts out uses the, the same art style. Yeah, the exact, I was just going to say. Everything from, and I'm a big fan of Vertigo, so everything from Northlanders to uh, Hellblazer to Loveless to 100 Bullets all have like the basic same art style. 
And I dig it. I can't say that I, I don't. It's just kind of, it's super comic booky, And I, I kind of like that, that art style, the comic book. But what I will say is probably my favorite aspect of the book is the, the character of John Constantine and how this guy is not uh, your, your typical hero hero. Um, and I've said this, I think I've said it on the podcast before, but I've definitely said it to friends uh, who are fans of popular arches. Lately, I've seen a lot of stories that give you good guys and bad guys, and sometimes the bad guys are kind of ambiguously bad. Are they really bad, or are they, you know, you know they have some sort of rationale or reason behind it? And the good yeah. guys are kind of unambigu- are unambiguously good. They are just good. And, like, a good example is the last Star Wars film, where, like, Kylo Ren is kind of wishy-washy. Is he a bad guy? Is he not a bad guy? Is there... And then, like, all the people on the... I, I don't know if they're the Rebel Alliance anymore, but uh, they're good guys. There's no way around it. There's good guys. And what I like about Constantine is there's some ambiguity to him. Like, he does some really shitty things. There's a lot of ambiguity to him. I was going to say, yeah, the only I... thing that he's really in... in that's really important to him is self-preservation. Yeah, and I think that just makes him far more interesting. Is I like a- ambiguously bad characters, ambiguous villains. I really like ambiguous heroes. I think that makes for a much more interesting story. So that's my primary draw to this this storyline or this this book in particular. So I I like that we dive directly into the story. We don't have an origin story here. Now, I realize that uh, the character of John Constantine actually shows up in issue 37 of Swamp Thing. So I have not read those. So I don't know if any backstory was given there. But we just sort of dive into the middle. Um, this guy clearly has a long uh, past history that's sort of revealed in bits and pieces here and there, or at least referenced in bits and pieces. But we don't need to get into all of that. We can figure out everything we need to know about the character in the first issue, which I thought is is a dying art i think in comic books at the moment the other thing i have to say is that some issues felt even and i even had to go back and check and make sure that the writer was still the same some of these issues felt like they were written by an entirely different person especially i think it was issue three which was about uh vietnam america the Mm -hmm. uh sons of liberty the liberty idaho is that the state is from iowa Iowa, that's right. Um, the the guys that get stuck in Vietnam and and are magically brought back. Also, I it's, it's, it's issue, issue five. It's called when Johnny comes marching home again. Oh, it is issue five. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. It was yeah. Was... It was written by uh, Del- the basic plot of that one is uh, what's cool about this is it's even though the stories are kind of episodic, there are little links that keep it all yes. threaded together. So there's the this damnation army, there's this uh, resurrection crusaders who are kind of polar opposites, but at the same pyramid time of still... Pyramid of prayer. Pyramid of prayer, like these kind of mocking, kind of parody of new wave evangelicals in the 1980s, kind of like a hyper Falwell type. Yeah. And then you've got like the Satanists. And for those who don't know, in the 1980s, there was a big Satanist scare, in, at least in America. I don't know if it was in Britain, because the book is very British, but it it bounces between America and Britain fairly often. So, yeah. so those were kind of 
things that grounded it in the reality of the 1980s. Uh, if, if, and I'm specifically... Do either of you remember that record that supposedly said something satanic if you played it backwards? What oh, was the there were like there were like dozens of like them. Like dozens, at really? Dozens. Okay. Wanna... Everything from Judas Priest to Led Zeppelin in the 70s. To, I want to say uh, um, Pink Floyd's uh, The Wall. Pink Ozzy Floyd Ozzy is the one I had heard of. Yep. Yeah, it's a whole bunch of them. But yeah, there's a lot of... There, I mean, there was a big Satanism scare in the 80s in Southern California with the daycares, and the Damnation Army kind of has that vibe to it, this kind of cult of Satanists. And then you've got this evangelical cult that... You know, I, I, and they reappear throughout the course of the story, so they're kind of these ever-present characters that color the universe, but they don't dwell on them too much because Constantine will have these little stories that he's got to... Fixate, and then he's got the a couple of reoccurring characters like Zed, the female character, which mm-hmm. you know I I thought was all really really cool. You Again, know, I don't. Cool. To, to be I honest, think... being a friend of Constantine is a really bad fucking gig. Yeah, he, I don't. He think screws that's a good over. Idea. He either screws over, intentionally or unintentionally, three different people in nine issues. I yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up because issue one, or actually not issue, well, the first two issues were one story arc. Mm-hmm. were really my favorites because they really they test your loyalty to this character. Yeah. Where basically he the, the plot is there's a a demon on the loose because one of his buddies, a childhood buddy of his is uh he messed up, you know, his own version of of demonic possession or magic and he's unleashed this demon on New York and John's got to clean up the mess and basically what he does is he sacrifices his friend, you know, a childhood friend to stop this demon. Yeah, and it's one of those things where, like, yeah, he kind of had to do it, but it, it, you know, he lies to his friend the whole way. He reassures him that everything's going to be all right. You and also then, get the sense that this friend is a little bit helpless because he's yep. a junkie, because he's only he's so he's very childlike. So it's almost as though, and and of course, the in the initial couple of pages, you realize that the first time this demon had been sort of held right. and and trapped and and bound. To, it was to a Sudanese child, so yeah, you also get this sort of yes. So you also get this sort of this yin yang, this balance with this other. It's a grown man, and yes, he did screw up a couple of times, and yes, it's technically his fault that this demon is loose in New York. But he's also very childlike. He's looking to John for protection. He's looking to him to help him with his next fix. Um, he comes to him for help from the get go. He goes, John will know what to do, and he hides out in John's apartment until John gets back. So you also get kind of get the sense that not only is he sacrificing his friend, he's sacrificing someone, this very childlike person who is dependent on him, which yeah. is even worse, I think. And, and I love, yeah, oh, absolutely. I agree, that's why I, I, I loved it so much. I, the, the confrontation on the top of the building in Manhattan is my favorite part, is where the, the junkie kind of goes after John's put the demon in, in the junkie's body by uh, dangling him out like shark bait. He comes after him, and I love the part where he goes, um, he says, as he's being attacked, he's, he says, uh, don't let it do this to you. Don't let it make you hurt me. I'm your friend, mate. It's me, John Constantine. You don't want to hurt me. And then if you just go a few pages later, they brick this character up inside a cell underneath the building. And I just thought that was really beautiful. I just thought that was just a, a really dark moment of the story that, that I was like, well, okay, this is a different kind of character. Did you catch that moment when... Um the what's the 
Midnight? Is that what he calls himself? The the yeah, club owner? Pop, the Papa Midnight, yeah. Papa Midnight. So he's he works voodoo magic, and he, so he's the guy that John Constantine turns to. There's this beautiful moment, and I love the writing in this book. This is The writing is what kept hooking me back in. There's this moment when Papa Midnight looks out. He's standing in this homemade jungle, uh, this sort of terrarium-style atrium thing at the top of his building with these giant jungle plants behind him and he looks out over the city of new york and says something about i'm looking out into the jungle right i just thought that was really this cool juxtaposition of the real jungles actually new york city i thought that was cool yeah i think he goes he says he's talking to like a skull and he, his it, sister he, his sister yeah, that's right his sister he advised me out there in the jungle something moves can your dead eye see its face tell uh your dead mouth tell me its name i think that was that was kind of cool so yeah, the first the first arc uh, that spans two issues, I think, really sold me on it. And then after that, the book gets a little episodic, while dropping little hints that there's a bigger arc to come. And I, yeah. I was, I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed all of that. Yeah, you know, one of the things I think I enjoyed the most has to be the fact that at times you never know if John's going to completely lose it, if he's going to yeah. he, if he's going to break, because there are times, especially. Uh, I think issue eight, where John just completely loses his mind. Yeah, and he's in the the hospital gurney or whatever yep. it is, right? Are, uh, yeah. yeah, and there are times he is regularly haunted by mm. th- what what he thinks of the, the spirits of his friends whom he's whom have died, and he basically the ones he's screwed over. Yep, and. Again, I mean, he's around other people, so like he's the only one who's seeing these. But I don't know if if John is if if they're there or and only John can see them, or if not, and John's just losing his mind. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of. So the one thing with the book is, I I bought into the the supernatural element of it. You have to kind of buy premises when you step into certain stories. Yeah. So uh. So, you know, someone who doesn't believe in the supernatural at all in any facet, I just bought into it as a fantasy world and was totally... I just took the ghosts as, yeah, these are ghosts that haunt him. And I thought that was pretty cool, like especially like one of them was his ex-girlfriend, and then when he screws over uh, Gary Lester, Gary like gets added to the roster of ghosts that start to yep. follow him. And I was like, that that's really cool. Yeah, the uh, other thing I t- like... Towards the end, the, um, the older gay man gets added in as well. Really? Yes, yep. and what I what I enjoy is sometimes how Constantine is fairly ineffective. Like uh, Tracy, you talked about the the coming was it the coming home or the shoot what was issue five again? I'm trying to remember the name. When Johnny comes marching home, where John has no role to play in that story at all. Nor does he, he care is, to. That too. he just watches he just watches this whole disaster unfold. Where yeah. you know you've got a veteran who is just severely damaged who committed a war crime. And then the 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 unit that he screwed over show is summoned by the the, the pyramid of prayer after they pay a certain fee, and which I love that part. I just oh, I yeah. love that. I absolutely love that. And they show up, and and the family thinks they're doing good. They've done all the the, the families of these, uh, the parents of these children who have been killed in Vietnam twenty something years earlier. Yeah, they think they 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 think they've done well. And they've just brought these incredibly angry war spirits. I think the line in the book is the the spirits have brought the war with them, and it just turns into a complete disaster. Yeah. And and, and all all John is, I think he says at the end of this issue is, uh, 
I ceased being an observer and become a witness. I thought that was really yeah. cool. Is sometimes he sucks. Can I now, ask other, you guys? Other times he's good, like with the um, waiting for the man. What is it called? Waiting for the man, where he does take charge and he does, uh, you know, save the day, as it were. So you get this both sides of this hero, which I, I think makes him more complicated. Because there's a part of the book where you go, I'm not really sure if John's going to save the day. Yeah. Which yeah. makes it, to me, interesting. Did either of you get the impression, speaking of issue five, when Johnny comes marching home, that the only spirits and demons were in the one guy's mind, not John's, the other war hero, war hero. Um, I almost got the feeling that he was the only one that was actually there, and he was the one that could see the other guys, but no one else could. No, because there, <clears throat> there's a panel where like the all, all all the parents and all the old people look out the, look out a window and and oh my oh they're my boys. They're... Yeah. Oh, they actually do see them. Yeah. Okay. They, I... they there's it's a brief panel where they interact. It's a page. I, I just pulled it up real quick. Uh, page one thirty two. It's the bottom third, bottom two thirds, where um, the soldiers start to show up while while the while Lieutenant Ross is going crazy. But you could see the elderly people saying to them, uh, "You're our children," and another one saying, uh, "Hey, let her go. What are you doing? Uh, please, Craig, I'm your mother." Like they're they're interacting with them, and then okay. to the point where the old folks are saying things like, uh, "We brought you back. We prayed for you," um, and then and then you see. Uh, Lieutenant Ross interact with the ghost. So I, I mean, again, I, I, it's one of those things that how do you accept the premise? You can certainly argue that it might be inside someone's head, but, but for the, the way the book is themed, I, you, I just feel like you got to accept the supernatural wholeheartedly for this yeah. to make sense and to, and to really enjoy it because it, it's a lot more fun if you do. Yeah. Well, I also get the impression that it's sort of a in, in that particular case, I was kind of wondering where the mix is because there's clearly also some mental illness. I, I do accept, I have a, a suspension of disbelief for the supernatural, the demons, that kind of thing, but there's also some element that feels like some of these characters have some mental issues, and I wonder sure. if it's sort of a blend of the two, which is also a cool premise, in, in my opinion. No, sure, I, mean, I, th I think that's part of part of what they're going for, is yes, there is there is supernatural and all, th all these things happening, but there are times where the, the, the line between quote-unquote reality and what's in someone's head you know, start to start to fade, yeah. and, and I, th I mean, I think John's kind of one of the the key players on that. Like I said, there are times, you know, again, we're assuming that you know there are ghosts in this universe. You know, you s whether is John seeing ghosts or are they just? Is it basically just the guilt in his head playing tricks with him? And that's a, a good point. I, I want to piggyback on it a little bit further because the book isn't just about blurring the lines between reality and not. It's blurring the lines about like everything. Uh, like morality gets blurred. Rea uh, reality is blurred. Good uh, and right bad. and wrong. Yeah, right and wrong. All this kind of stuff. And there's also some great moments of humor. There's uh, towards the the latter part of the, um, or maybe right there in the middle. You've got these like four skinheads that have been like fused <laughs> together. Yeah. And to get. One of the cool things is John doesn't is not really a fighter. He's not like a Conan or a Bond. You know, he says multiple times, "I don't like guns. I don't like fighting," because he's kind of a wuss, right? He does kind of suck, and he never. It's unlike, let's say, the characters in Preacher. Uh, I'm trying to uh, Cassidy and shit. What's his name? Jesse. Jesse, 
who every are, other are issue, brawlers yeah they are they go to bars to start fights like that just they go to bars to start and they of course they win every single one and this one constantine's not the case and he's got to like use little tricks to defeat his enemies so like in waiting for the man just gets his ass whooped and he and by the grace of god zed is behind the dude with a bottle and, and blindsides him that's the only way they beat him right they she has yeah. to blindside the guy and when it comes to the four skinheads that get ripped to pieces and then fused together by a demon, John pits their their football alliances against one another and forces it to beat beat itself to death, which I thought was super fantastic. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Also shows a really good understanding of football hooligan culture. Yeah. Good lord, if there's anybody that would actually kill itself, it would be a a, a fused football hooligan half of which supports Chelsea and half of which supports Arsenal. Well, in, in, in general, this book is a, is a springboard for a lot of English writers. Warren Ellis, Neil Gaiman, Garth Ennis, J- Jamie Delano, like all these guys, they get their start here, but they use this as, as, a, as a big jumping off point into other like DC, DCU kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it really was kind of like where they made their name. I also like the uh, the moment where his buddy uh, Richie goes into the internet, and you almost get this like. For the 1980s, I was actually really impressed. I mean, then again, they did Tron, so maybe I shouldn't be that surprised. Tron, this this postdates Tron, but it, it was drawn fantastic. And then of course yeah, the his was friends really good on that one. spontaneously combusts, and and again, Constantine pulls this move that surprises. The reader, I think, certainly surprises me as he unplugs his friend. That was the one moment when I really thought, that guy's a bastard. Yeah. <laughs> that, I, I thought... mean, out of everything that he did, that was the thing that pissed me off because I was like, he could just leave him in there. Like, there's right. absolutely nothing that says he has to switch the off switch. Yeah, but at the same what time. An asshole. Uh, yeah, but at the same time, the question then, then becomes, how much is that guy actually, is now actually living? He can't return. His body's gone. He's right. permanently stuck in the computer. Is it really worth worth his living anymore any further yeah i'm curious to see because i don't when i start when we started reading this book i knew nothing about this character i knew nothing about the backstory so i'm curious to see if he shows up i don't think he showed up as a ghost because the ghosts show up again i don't think he was one of them be curious if this guy found his way into the the internet ether and shows up again or or something like that i thought that was that was i thought that was this is comics it probably will happen the other the other thing i really like is Obviously, you know, Constantine is kind of uh, ambiguously good, ambiguously bad. But they also don't have just, like, the traditional good-bad roles. Like, both the demons and the and the Christian right group are effectively equivalently evil. Right. It's just one, one is honest about itself, and the other is delusional. It's not even just... I mean, I mean certainly honesty is, is part of it, but it's just... Even though those two are polar opposites, mm-hmm. they're still an opposing force to John. John, and they even mention it in the book, John is frequently the third way. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily Sounds like the, the Libertarian Party. <laughs> yeah, but not necessarily. In, in John's case, he's not necessarily the right way. He's just a alternate. He's, right. You know, which I think is kind of cool. Uh, you know, we we don't like the demons, obviously. Although in the in the issue, despite its politics, the issue about the demons. Uh, taking bets on the conservative party winning a third term. Right. 
that was freaking hilarious. Yeah, it was. I mean, that was really funny. And I know, like, Delano is known for his adding his politics into the story, which I can overlook. I really don't care. Um, it was really funny. Like, I, I really thought that was the whole thing where the he fakes out the demon to... to crashes the stock market. Crashes the stock market in souls. Yeah. Because they're, <laughs> they're suddenly they're betting, undervalued. <laughs> Yeah, they're betting on the futures. They're betting that the conservatives will win a third term. So John shows up to bet against the futures. And the demon's like, what? you got to be kidding me. So they, they sell short on the, the market in the U.K. souls and wind up getting beat. I just thought that was so funny. I thought that was actually a really very British sense of humor. Right? I don't it, know was, I, it was amusing, but I think overall that was the weakest issue out of this whole. In fact, that was the next thing I was going to bring up is that there are a bunch of times when political views kind of come into this, but I think all of them were done better than that issue. That was so blatant. I felt like he sat down in a like a fuming fury the night of the election and wrote that thing. That's you're what it probably, felt like. You're probably right. It was definitely the weakest, but it, it to me it was also the funniest. It was the most humorous of that group. Yeah. I, I wouldn't disagree with you too too far on that one. I, I just I take Br British writers in politics, particularly in the the Thatcher era. I really take with a grain of salt. Like, I really, really do. Because I think history's kind of borne her out a little bit. And, yeah. they, and you know, with, the, with, you know, Alan Moore and all these other guys who wrote anti-Thatcher books in the 80s. And we could probably do a whole podcast about them. Oh, Lord, don't even ask the Irish even today about Maggie Thatcher. Good God. Yeah. I mean, I mean, talking about, like, the politics of the time, I also think one of the most interesting parts of this is just how of the 80s it is but and not necessarily in a bad way right it, it is very much a book of its times but it is also very much it is set in the era and it makes sense mm -hmm. in, in the day uh john's friend ray gets gets a diagnosis of aids and mm -hmm. his and his treatment is is very by other people is very much very much the same ray's actually got a, a line that is is I can't call it prophetic because he's right and he's not right. Where he says, uh, when he's talking about it, this uh, AIDS love, don't be afraid to speak its name. That's what, that's what they want people to do. Push it back to the closet with all the queers and the junkies. They'll only mm -hmm. wake up when the straights start dying. Then it'll be too, too bloody late. Right. So, I mean, I think we've realized that it's not too late Obviously, you know, mm -hmm. this isn't quite the epidemic that we th thought it might be in the 80s, though it is certainly of epidemic proportions. But he's damn right. He's damn right. Nobody started paying attention to this until the, until the straight community started being affected. Re Realist oh, yeah, realistically. Yeah. And, yeah. And, 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 and I mean, that's 1988. So that's, you know. Well, I also, uh, it, it reminded me of that awesome picture of Princess Diana hugging the man with AIDS, um, which happened, I think, in 91. So three years after this was written. And it was that moment when, I mean, before that, of course, the more intelligent, maybe the academic community, the CDC, were understanding that you couldn't get AIDS from touching someone. But the the population of the earth as a whole did not know that or didn't believe it. So to see this woman who was such a, a princess of the people actually hugging a man who had been diagnosed with AIDS and had it openly was a really big moment. So, and that's what I kept thinking of when I was reading those scenes. Well, it's that, and the fact that, I mean, at the, especially at the time, AIDS was affecting what were, were, were basically undesirable portions of the population. So yep. the general attitude was, who gives a shit? 
Yeah. I'm sure. trying to remember. This, this was written in 88. I'm pretty sure. Did the Ryan White itch incident happen by that point? The the young boy who, the hemophiliac who contracted it from a blood transfusion? Because I, I, do, I do like the line, but I do feel like it's a little bit of hindsight. Like, you get, you get to write that after the fact. Because by 88, it was pretty well understood that everyone was getting affected. You know, in yeah. the early 80s, 83, 84, 84 85. 84, 84 was yeah. Ryan White. Right, yeah. So by this point, by this point, it's... It, it, it's obviously, yeah, it was it was not prophetic. Uh, to me, it was a little, it was hindsight, but still a fairly powerful I, sense. I don't know. I, you know, see, I, don't, I still don't know that it's high. I mean, I think it became more, more well aware that, you know, people could get it, but it still wasn't any kind of common. I mean, it was still, it was still shocking when um, Magic Johnson announced that he had, he had HIV. Right. right. I mean, oh, that no, was a it huge was. deal. That was a huge deal. I remember that. No, so, yeah, but I mean, there's a difference between. Well, I'm I'm specifically talking about the straight community being affected, vice our understanding of how it spread. I think Tracy's right. There were still plenty of people who were super ignorant about well, how how it was spread. But I think by by '88, it was a fairly it, it, people understood it was a problem. I think by '88, they had already knitted that big quilt on the on the White House lawn. Like it was it was pretty it was pretty well understood. Or at least it was well known by that point. Well, it I think was it was well known that it was a big. I think it was. I think it was well known, like again, how it was transmitted. Like, I don't know. I, I just that still feels kind of prophetic, honestly. I, I mean. All right. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I'm trying to think because I don't. I don't think anyone really started. I mean, giving much of a shit until the mid '90s. Well, I wouldn't say that. As just someone who has. Uh, family members who had AIDS and died by that point. I wouldn't say that. Um, I really think the turning point was Rock Hudson. That was really what changed everything. Was was Rock Hudson, but I don't remember when that happened. So, but I mean, that was a small part of the book. It wasn't even that big of a feature. But it it, go, it does go to show that there are these great flashes of brilliance that you'd almost miss because they do happen quite quickly uh, within within Delano's writing. And then other times he just beats you over the head with it. Yeah. I mean, there there there's those, yeah. but that didn't bother me that much. Um, did you guys notice that it seemed as though the colorist might have been a little off, or it might just be that I was reading it on my Kindle? Um, but when I first was introduced to Zed, I thought she was an old woman because of her hair. And then right, I realized yeah. he kept calling her kid. And I'm like, oh, it's, no, she's she's young. No, it mentions it mentions that she's young. Again, it's one of those things you got to kind of catch it because it, it happened so quickly that you could pass you by. And then her hair progressively gets whiter yeah as as the story goes on um yeah i don't know i mean again vertigo vertigo art's weird so it might be because you were on the kindle because to me i didn't really notice it but i'm, I'm paging through it right now because by i think by the end of the book she's got really short white hair yeah and, and it's very yeah. smooth at that point very yeah and it's like you know it's just that i think that was just vertigo art whereas previously she had uh james or uh Corella Deville Bowie, style. Bowie, uh, David Bowie hair. Oh, she had like is what I, I thought. Oh, really? Because when I first, when she's first introduced, I thought, is this some sort of cheap Corella Deville <laughs> that they're they're adding to this? Uh, but no, I, I see your points well taken. With the Vertigo, I don't, I don't know what it is. Is it, do they always employ the same artist? Now I'm gonna have to go look at all my Vertigo books 
Is it the same dude over and over again? I'm trying to. I'm looking at the credits right now. No, I mean it's 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 artists all over the. I mean Vertigo, again, it's being a, a kind of a DC imprint one. I think it's it was a jumping off point for a lot of a lot of artists. I mean, just looking at the first nine, it's the same colorist down the line. And these are the kind of things I don't. And it's the same pencils. Mm-hmm. Well, then it switches. Sometimes it'll say written by, ink by, letters by, pencils by, and then sometimes it'll just say art by. Looks like, well, yeah, maybe Casey's got a point, because uh, Ghosts in the Machine, they break down the pages when they changed artists. So maybe, maybe there is a difference. I just, I, I, It's actually a good catch, because I didn't notice it until she brought it up, and now I'm looking at the credits, and you can see that there's art by uh, Brett Ewins and Jim McCarthy from pages 167 to 169, and then John Ridgway from 170 to 190. So maybe there were changes that you you notice better in the Kindle because of the way it's done in Kindle. I didn't possibly. Notice. I get the guided view, so I get kind of an enlarged. I oh. read on the guided view, so. Okay. I mean, I, mean I, I, I definitely noticed inconsistencies in art, and maybe this is just a modern, being a modern, more modern comic reader. I mean, I'm I've gotten kind of used to pages, artists flip flopping all over the place based on pages. Some you know. Certain books, especially uh, mm. Marvel event books, were have been bad at times. Where they've had, you know, here here's issue number seven with eight fucking artists because we were running late and couldn't get it done. <laughs> yeah, we packed this issue with so many artists. You have to like it. Or there was there was um, <laughs> it, it was this was actually done on purpose. Well, there was uh, Harley Quinn issue zero. They were basically like, all right, Amanda Connor's gonna write it. Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotta are Jimmy Palmiotta are gonna write it, but you guys get to pick the artist. And so they had like thirty artists do like a page or two a piece. I couldn't take that issue. I just couldn't do it. Yeah, I, I definitely prefer a consistent art style, at least per issue. Yeah, I mean it, it's nice to get it on a long run too, but yeah. Actually, I think my most recent disappointment was when the artist on Rat Queens changed, switched, because I really liked the art in the first, like, six issues, and then it changed, and I was like... Yeah, I, I, mean, this... I, I had a similar feeling. <laughs> well, any... I, think, I, think that, I think that covers it. Yeah, I any, any, final, any further final thoughts from anyone? I mean, I'll say, I think we'll say this. Um, I would recommend at least... I haven't read all of these, but Original Sins... I, I highly recommend if you've never read it before. Uh, I didn't know anything about it when I jumped into it, and I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, if for no other reason than the character of John Constantine, that this is, this book probably has one of the most compelling characters in comics uh, around right now. I found the writing style to be very compelling. This felt this is really the definition to me of a graphic novel, where the the story and the writing could be just as easily prose in a regular novel, and instead it's uh, submitted graphically, which I I just I really love the metaphors. I love the way the story flowed. Um, really brilliant example of of comic writing. Yeah, and I would say I think this this showcases the quality of of Vertigo work, especially back in the day under under Karen Berger, and 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 just. The kinds of books that came out. If you really want to see like some of the best work that's come out of of, of Vertigo, this is a good good place to one of a good pl number of good places to start. Good, I think that covers it. Yeah. Or do you want do you want me to ask what have you been into? I don't know. 
<laughs> I'll do it. I'll do it. Tracy, what have you been into? Oh, geez. Okay, so I, I read... Well, I don't. I read this one comic called Hellblazer, um, but there's another one called. Um, oh shoot! Now I'm gonna forget the name of it. Um, That's a weird title. I know, right? I wish I thought of that one. Uh, Tooth and Claw, The Autumn Lands. I just huh. started that one, so I. That's actually um, fairly good. I I've kind of enjoyed that. It's a like a nice fantasy. I okay. don't know that. I don't know that one at all. What is that? Yeah, well, I've a, only read one issue, so you go, Andrew. It's basically a, a fantasy series with um, all uh, anthropomorphized animals. Oh, okay. Basically kind of like magic is dying in this world, and they've got to figure mm -hmm. out why. And so they, they, they basically convene a, a council of, of, of magicians to try and figure out what's going on and maybe fix it and goes from there. So, If you okay. like David Peterson's Mouse Guard, I think that this would be something else that you would enjoy. They're not that much alike but yeah i think so um i also they have animals that's about where it stops right that's like um, recommending squarriers for anyone who's read mouse guards like it has it has animals in it they're, they're <laughs> psychopathic insane you know murder machine animals but they like robert patterson's mouse guard they get the animals um i've also oh my god i i have i have hit failure on criminal minds i'm i'm done with it um, I hit, didn't, that, I, didn't that actor just like he he can't he can't direct or something? He beat the shit Thomas out of something. Gibson. Yeah, he's not allowed. He's he's been suspended for two episodes because he kicked his producer, <laughs> which is interesting. Whatever. Um, I actually watched up until Jennifer Love Hewitt joined the cast, and the first like in the first two episodes, she had this. Was oh, that what she's doing? Amazing boob bounce. Yeah, uh, it was just fantastic. Did. So well, it's better now. I I don't know if she's like curvy or something now it's, but it's, she's getting older so they're sagging more so there's more bounce oh. like before they were firm but now they're you know she's getting older it's not a bad thing they're, they're loosening up so there's just yeah. even more bounce back there. it looked great so i stuck it out for like two more episodes and then at one <laughs> point the one character says to another character why don't you give me some parameters to search so i can narrow down this profile and he goes why don't you search men white men ages 30 to 35 and she looks at him and goes I forgot how good you are at this and I'm like what <laughs> and then I turned it off and I'm done it's like oh I'm done done so that's Do it you remember, did you ever see that that TV movie from Lifetime where Jennifer Love Hewitt's like a, a rub and tug massage therapist no did you ever see that one nope. that came out of, that came out oh I want to say four or five years ago where I think it was like they it was a I think it was a TV movie or maybe it was a mini series on Lifetime, where it was it was she was a rub and tug masseuse and I, I, my buddy's girlfriend had watched it and she's like it's stupid it's just it's just a bunch of dudes talk, trying to talk to her and it's got Jennifer Love Hewitt you just want to get rubbed off by Jennifer Love Hewitt that's why you're there don't 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 pretend like you want to talk about feelings. <laughs> wow. No, I want to look it up. I want to look that one up. How about you, yeah. Andrew? Uh, I started reading uh, uh, Naja from Magnetic Press. Excellent. Yeah, I'm uh, like two chapters into it. That's been pretty good. It's about a, an assassin who doesn't, who literally feels no pain. Mm. And uh, the like, so she's the the number three hitman for her boss. And for some reason, she finds out the number one hitman is after her. 
Oh, that's that's always the story. The no, you got the number two hitman, and the number one hitman's after you. But she's so good, she becomes the number one hitman. That basically it. You just spoiled it for me. <laughs> yeah, just, I mean, so I mean, I mean, I assumed that was what was gonna happen. I mean, I assumed that's what's gonna happen. So no, I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like almost every hitman story that's ever written. Remember the movie, the first movie, the hitman. He's like the best hitman ever. But then his bosses turn on him. It's like why? He's the best ever. Why would you do that to him? You're just gonna make him mad. Yeah, see, I never saw that, any of the hitman movies. I. I can't remember who who plays the the hitman in those. Uh, utterly unforgettable actors, from what I remember. I, I don't. I actually don't. I I, I didn't even see. Both. I didn't even see either of them, and I knew how they were going to play out. Right. Need to. Um, that's probably. I honest to God, that's most. That and Hellblazer's mostly it. Uh, Timothy Oliphant. Oh, that's why, because I don't like Timothy Oliphant. <laughs> yeah, you hate Timothy Oliphant the way Boss hates Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> uh, you know, I haven't harassed him about Branagh in a while. Yeah, I think the last time I did was when the first Thor movie came out, and I just started yeah. like posting all kinds of stuff on Facebook about how awesome Thor was and tagging him in it. <laughs> that that might have been why he unfriended me for several years. I remember when, when I figured out the password to his work computer, I just, like, made his background Kenneth Branagh photos on, on a cycle. Oh, God. You guys are genuinely evil, both of yeah, you. And I found, like, the most smuggiest look on his face to put on his background. He punches in his password, there's Kenneth Branagh staring at him. I mean, you know, having, having watched a fair amount of the Branagh and a fair amount of the Olivier, I mean, like, overall, Olivier's better. But there's a there's a couple of like Henry V. Olivier's Henry V. Olivier's great. Nobody else in that in that in that production knows how to enunciate anything. Yeah, Olivier will give give these great speeches, and then everyone else will be like, "What in God's name is happening?" Do you ever watch the MST3K where they they riff on Olivier's Hamlet? No, I mean we sat through Rocco's class and listened to him do it. Yeah, but I mean, the, the, the MST3K guys are priceless. I, I just, I just, yeah, Rocco was pretty bad too. It's, the, the, man, he used to get so stuck on incestuous sheets. He well, he must have replayed that at least seventeen times when I saw it. He just kept going back and forth, incestuous sheets, and he we would turn. Do it the, again. We might have been in the same incestuous class. Incestuous sheets, and he turns around. Do it again. It's like, well, what kind of sheets? Incestuous sheets. What kind of sheets? And he would just keep going back and forth. Oh uh, man, good times. Uh, that was that was something. Yeah. So, I was I've been going through uh, hundred bullets. I'm on the second volume of hundred bullets now because I'm really I collected the whole thing and now I should actually read it. And I just saw a friend of mine post this meme on Facebook that I think applies to me when it comes to trade paperbacks. He was like, I own two hundred something books. I just bought seventeen. I'm rereading Harry Potter. Oh my right? god, that's my life. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh okay, yeah, that's actually true. I should. I should probably read the shit that I have in the shelf. So um, punching my way through 100 bullets, and I want to get back into the Conan stuff. And uh, as alluded to earlier, I dug up my Battlefleet Gothic ships, and I played that by myself like a fucking nerd. And that was that was fun. It's, it's surprisingly well-balanced. I, I can't wait to get a, try it with an, uh, an opponent because I've got everything I needed. Um, also, I saw Sasha's party last night, and... That's I getting thought, a lot of flack. What, how was that? I thought it was really funny. It's it's really like a don't give a shit balls out 
not funny. And I was at lunch with a friend, and she was, like, telling me that her friend saw it and that her friend said it was every racist joke you can think of being shouted at you by a Pixar movie, which just encouraged me more to see the film because I was like, now I have to see this. Right. And it, it, it's really, the movie is more about religion than anything else. That's really what the movie's about. Is if you, it's, it's a complete allegory to religion. Uh, and it's funny. It's really, really funny. I guess what's making people mad is that all the foods are... Like, all the, the ethnicities of the foods are the ethnicities personified. So, like, the bagel is, is a real is a stereotypical Jewish person. The falafel is a stereotypical Middle Eastern. The taco is Selma Hayek. Uh, it's all, but it's like, it's, it's what you would expect. Like, the, the fire water is an Indian dude. Grits, Grits is voiced by Craig Robinson. Like, it's, it's everything I'm, I'm, you I'm would expect. I'm now tuning you out and looking up pictures of Selma Hayek. Yeah. I mean, she's, she plays a lesbian taco in this. It is so good. It's really so they good. hit it on t- racism and gen- uh, and Not- sexual orientation. Nice. And religion. Don't forget really like really the story is about religion. That's what the uh, and I'll I'll, I'll Yeah, but the taco, I mean the taco, a taco is Spanish and, you know, taco. So. Yeah. No, no, it's it's I don't yeah, I don't see like, a religion thing theme in in the in the actual well, in that, image. In that specific thing, but but no, if you watch the whole movie as a whole is about religion. Like if you watch the whole thing, it's super super religious, but it's really really funny. And yeah, people like call it all these kind of names. No, but it's 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 playing on on stereotypes, of course. But there's there's difference between you know having fun with all the stereotypes we understand and you know being hateful. And the and the movie's not hateful. That that's the one thing I think people need to understand. Okay, that's fair. All right, folks. If you like what we do, make sure you head on over to thereforegeek.com. Check out our blog posts and our podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter. And you can find this podcast and other podcasts like it on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and YouTube. So once again, (laughs) once again, I'm Andrew. I'm Tracy. I'm Dude. And you've been listening to Therefore I Geek.